Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Those of you who have uh, come on this retreat multiple times or other retreats, you might be used to having the Dharma talk in the evening, um, but we've decided to do it earlier for many reasons. One, we feel like the mind is just much brighter and fresher and more receptive at this time of day than at the end of the day. Um, one of the other reasons is because we age <laughs> and we get tired towards the end of the day. Um, and also having it earlier in the day gives an opportunity to maybe process and engage with the content that's being delivered in a different way um, than just going to sleep with it. So if you're kind of wondering why this feels so weird, it's, it's different. <laughs> it's different than, than we usually do it. And I also want to really acknowledge how radical and different this is from our, our lives, you know, how we typically move through the world. Um, the renunciation that we're asking for on this retreat is not the way that we are used to, right? I mean, um, this noble silence that in and of itself, I think I've never told anybody what I do for a living without them saying I could never be in silence for a week. That's just like the common response <laughs> to when I say what I do. So that in and of itself is, is extreme and we, we know that and we understand that. So um, thank you for, for honoring and at least giving that a try. Um, we're sort of entering into a monastic experience together. Um, you know, we're, st- we're stepping aside from the norm of our lives and doing something um, that even our closest friends and family probably don't totally understand. I know mine still don't 20 years in. <laughs> They're still trying to save me. <laughs> but then they go, oh, wait, but you're kind of nicer now. So maybe this is okay. <laughs> maybe this works for us. Maybe this works in our favor. So, you know, um, patting yourselves on the back for making it, you know, more than 24 hours. This silence, this renunciation. Putting down um, what we know is familiar. And sometimes it's hard to leave. You know, for me, sometimes it's hard to go on retreat because I feel like I'm doing some really active, important work out there. And it almost scares me to put it down, right? I almost feel like something's for sure going to fall apart, my partner, when I, when I, about a day and a half before I go on retreat, they step aside because I get real weird. And I start spinning around the house, like fixing things, making things right, controlling all everything, right? Because I'm like, there's worry. 
You know, there's worry that it's going to fall apart while I'm gone. So, you know, then we come into this and then someone tells us, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to ring a bell for you. You don't need to even wear a watch. You know, you don't need to know what time it is. You don't need to shop. You don't need to cook. You don't need to do, I mean, you have a yogi job, um, but I'm hoping that's not too unpleasant. You know, so life gets real simple here. It gets real simple. And there's the support, there's the network for you to then go, oh shit, here I am, right? Because then there's nowhere else to look but at ourselves. We can do our old habits of, you know, doing this and but they and the stories. Um, but really what happens when we put it all down is we start to, it keeps turning back, turning back, turning back, right? As you, as you may have noticed. So I want to talk a little bit, um, about, you know, why we sit, why bother? Um, and then also just, the idea of nature, nature and the word dharma, you've probably heard us use the word dharma or dhamma, which means the truth of the way things are. So how I'm using the word nature is in congruence with dhamma or dharma, nature and dharma, the truth of the way things are as nature, as dharma. Um, I want to start with uh, laying a little bit of groundwork just to pay respect to um, the tradition that we're practicing in and um, where we are, where we're sitting. The tradition that we're practicing in is called the insight tradition, sometimes known as mindfulness. Um, it's from the, li- the lineage of the Theravada Buddhism. Um, this tradition, the Theravada lineage, typically comes from Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, um, Cambodia, via northern India. So the Buddha was born in northern India. And then as everything, there's a diaspora that occurs. So it was born in northern India and then traveled because humans picked it up and then it traveled to all these different places, starting in Sri Lanka and then moving. And then it it touched in all the places that we know of, Nepal, Tibet, Japan, China, Korea, right? It touched in all those Asian, Southeast Asian countries. And each country that it went through, it also gathered um, different traditions and beliefs and ways of being and cultures in every country that it went through. So in each country that it went through, it took on a different form, a different shape, so that the people living there could readily access it, right? Would know how to be with it so that it would be um, useful, so that it would make sense, that it would be helpful for liberation. And then as it happened, it crossed, you know, it crossed the waters and then came out to the west And then when it touched into the West, a little bit more psychology, science, you know, weaved into it. 
And so that had, had its own spin. And so here we sit, we sit in this hall at IMS, um, that was founded by Western white people, um, who had teachers that were from the Asian lineage. And so there's this melding. And as we sit here, I love looking out at all your faces and I love thinking about where we've all come from, you know, and how we now, we now are this tradition, this lineage. Um, and through you, uh, through your learning, through who you are, through your history, the new diaspora comes, right? And so however you choose to digest or metabolize these teachings um, will make a difference and you'll express it in the way that you express it. And I think that's really beautiful. And it's actually one of the reasons why after many years of many different um, practices that I've followed, I finally landed on Buddhism because what I kept being told or seen over and over again was that how I held the practice, how it moved through me, um, was okay. I didn't have to believe something someone told me just because they told me to believe it. What, ha- what I was being told was, try it, check it out. See for yourself. What happens when you? I loved how Chaz answered a question this morning and said, well, what's the outcome of if you take a nap, if you go for a run or don't go for a run, right? If you take a nap or don't go, what's the outcome? So this is the beauty of this practice is that, you know, we've, we've, we watch where it's come from and how these 2,600-year-old teachings um, do not become irrelevant. They stay totally relevant through us. I love that. Um, so I think it's probably fair to say, and, you know, I don't need a show of hands, but, you know, many people come to this practice because we're maybe searching for something. Maybe we've had some real deep pain or traumatic experiences. Um, we have a longing, we have an emptiness, we're, we're searching in some way. You know, some people do come to the tradition uh, where everything's right and feels good and, and maybe they've been born into these practices and want to learn more about them. But I would say for the most part, um, we come because we've realized the truth of of discomfort, of suffering, of dis-ease. And we want to find a way to, to look at that, right? We want to find a way to maybe change it, um, but we also want to find a way to, to know ourselves and the truth of experience, the truth of this nature differently. Would that be fair to say? So... Backing up a little bit, um, going back to this experience of nature, um, I have found it really interesting, and it, it, it totally makes sense, is that most retreat centers are in beautiful places, <laughs> for the most part. I mean, there are there are urban centers that are are close to where we live, right, which might be right by the train or right by the highway or the freeway. But most retreat centers are set in these really rarefied, beautiful places, 
And I could rattle off a whole list of all the places that I've been. And usually they're set in the depths of nature. And when we go on our, when we do our walks or we go on our walking practices, we often come into contact with that. I've been here at IMS um, in the dead of winter, you know, January and February, where there's, I mean, I've been in eight feet of snow here. And, um, you know, it's just so quiet and so clean. And you don't have to worry about a bug or a bat. <laughs> and then coming here, in the, in the summer and the, you know, the aliveness, seeing the trees that have died over the winter or fallen, seeing the insects. Um, and what's so amazing is watch, the nature is our best teacher for change, for life, for death. I don't know, you know, Sometimes I wonder if it's, if it's because I'm getting older, but do you have that experience of seeing a, a fallen tree and, and just really like connecting to what it was and what it's becoming and the change? Does that happen for you or a flower as it's dying? Insects. I mean, that bat I'm super fascinated by. Who saw the bat? <laughs> Everybody. I mean, that bat is, did you see it up close? It's super cute. Like, it's so, it has this furry little face and these big eyes, you know, and it doesn't know that it's not supposed to be here, right? Like, we made it not supposed to be here, but it's just where it is. And it is just figuring out how to eat a bug or do its thing, right? And so when we let nature, when we let ourselves realize that we too are nature, we're not separate from nature, these bodies are made up of the same thing as that bat. You know, it's the muscles, it has a heart, it has a brain, it has flesh, it has bones, it has muscles, it has a heart. So we are made up of the same things as that bat. We are subject to the same things as that bat. And as humans, we've really elevated ourselves, right? And we we watch it. (laughs) We watch it in our politics. We watch it in our climate chaos. We watch it in how this planet is really suffering greatly at the hands of humanity, how the animals on this planet are suffering at the hands of humanity. So it's undeniable that we are nature because we too are subject to the changes that are happening on this planet. We're part of it. We're part of this system. Our flesh, our bones, our body, and our minds are part of the system. And so that this is something that, that, the Buddha really recognized 2,600 years ago, recognized the truth of our existence. So one of my um, favorite uh, traditions within our tradition are 
some uh, a group of um, ascetics called the Tudongs. So the Tudongs were a group of wandering um, Buddhist ascetics, and they lived in the Thai forest. So oftentimes the, in, within the Theravadan lineage, there's something called the Thai forest tradition. And so these Tudongs um, were interesting because they, they lived within the forest, usually alone, um, and they would spend years at a time living amongst the tigers, the snakes, the elephants. They would live under trees. And so I, I want to read to you what, so, so here we are, as I'm calling a monastery, right? But a monastery has walls, a roof. Someone's feeding us food. We have beds. We have running water. We have all of these. We're actually living in the lap of luxury here. It may not feel like it, but we are. <laughs> and so the, the Tudongs, um, they wore rag robes, right? So they wore robes, actually, that wasn't brand new material. It was fabric that was given to them or handed on to them or that they found. So they wore rag robes and they could only use three of them. So they were usually layers. So no matter how warm or cool it got, they were wearing three robes. They had an alms bowl. Um, this is quite big, but it was the shape of this. Um, so this was the bowl that they used to, to go on their alms rounds to get food from the, um, I'll tell you about that in a minute. So they had their alms. Um, they only ate once a day. So that was usually the early noon meal. Um, and then they didn't eat after that. Um, no second helpings. <laughs> they ate from their bowl. Um, they ate in the forest. They ate at the foot of the tree of a tree. They lived in the open air. They slept never lying down. So they slept sitting up all the time. <laughs> um, oftentimes living near a cemetery. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, so what the Tudongs did was they, they lived out in the forest, but never too far away from a community. So that that way they could go, they would get alms once a day, and then they would go back and, and, and practice all day. They lived close to a community for a reason. One of the reasons was so that they could share their practices with the people in the community. They didn't live too far that there wasn't a benefit um, for both the, the, the Tudongs and the community. Um, but they believed that meditation was the core. Meditation was the core of their practice. They were not scholars. So there were these scholars that lived in the monasteries in other regions, but they were the ones who felt like they were the hardcore ones. They didn't read a book. They didn't study. So it goes back to sort of like what we were talking about earlier with like when we get really conceptual in our practice, these people like tried to stay far away from concepts, right? Or, or any kind of um, mind states, but were really like living in their practice. Um, and the, the three basic things for them was their encounters with fear. So I, I'm, I'm telling you this so that we can, I'm going, I want to go keep it with like your practice as nature. So if you keep thinking about your practice as nature, your mind as nature, 
And so they were engaging constantly with fear. So imagine you're living in a forest. Like even just like imagine yourself now there. You're in a forest, wild animals. You can hear the tigers, the poisonous snakes. Anytime I could come and approach you, right? And so here you're sitting, sitting in silence. And so metaphorically, when I think of these tigers, when I think of these poisonous snakes, when I think of these elephants, right? When I think of these things, it's all of the ways that our mind kind of attacks us, right? So, so we can look at it as this external tiger, this external snake, this external elephant, or the, the conditions of the weather, the one meal a day, the sitting up in our seat and sleeping, not lying down. And so I often play with this idea of, okay, so there are these external circumstances that these tudongs, sort of my, my ancestral practitioners worked with. And then what is my own mind working with? What sort of fears? What sort of fatigue? We talked about that earlier too with sleep, right? So they worked with the fear of the animals. They also went into the cemeteries and worked with the fear of death, of the corpses and the spirits. They also worked with the fear of bodily suffering, which also came up this morning. So bringing into your practice, whenever you're feeling sort of alone, or wondering why you're doing this. Oftentimes I like to look at, as Rebecca keeps referring to these spiritual ancestors, these Tudong monks who were so brave and willing to really engage fully, you know, renounce and really engage with their practice. And I'm not saying by any means that any of us need to... um, (laughs) Although you can, like, it's actually kind of nice to go sit out in the forest and practice as long as you sort of watch out for the ticks and maybe put a blanket under you. Um, but it is kind of interesting to push the edge of our practice a little bit um, and engage with, instead of always backing down to, which is what we typically do, we typically distract ourselves or back down to that, that which we're not... Um, comfortable with. What's it like, like these tudongs to say, to sit in your practice and sort of meet it? Say, here I am. Here I am. What have you got for me? What can I engage with? Because as we know, as you know, as you've seen, the world that we engage with out there doesn't back down for us right? It keeps coming at us. And so what this practice offers is the capacity and the ability to meet and engage with what's coming our way.
So Rebecca brought up um, last night the Four Noble Truths. And so some of what I'm pointing to, most of what I'm pointing to is engaging with these Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth being um, the truth of the idea that there is discomfort in this world. We do engage with discomfort. The second noble truth being that our resistance to that discomfort is what causes more. I'm, I, there was a way that she worded it that um, I'm blanking on right now, but I, I really liked it. It was something about, anyway, it's okay. I wrote it down somewhere, but I, don't, I can't look at it right now. Um, the third is that there's a way, there is a way out. There's a way to suffer less. And then the fourth is the, the eightfold path, which is that particular path of less suffering. So how I like to break this down is in a way like, what can I control and what can't I control? So the first noble truth sort of points to what can't I control? What are those things that are out of my jurisdiction that I can't really do anything about? And I've named a few of them. I've named um, nature, the truth of the way things are. But what are some of the things that you can think of that you can't control, that are out of your jurisdiction? What are some of the things that you can think of? Like, I know that I cannot control time. Time is out of my control. Right. What other people think, what other people do, cannot control that. First noble truth. What else can't we control? Pardon? The past. That's right. How often do we try to? A lot. Yeah, we spend a lot of time ruminating and thinking about ways that we can reorganize the past, right? We try to think our way through, like Rebecca said earlier, we try to figure out how to reorient the past. Right. Where we're from, where we're born into, our genetic makeup. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, and, and maybe I will if, if there's time, but huge. And how often do we try to? Yeah, because oftentimes society and culture make it hard for us just to to be that way, right? Yeah. What else? Can we, we can't control aging. That's for sure. Can we, we can't really control death. That's going to happen. The things that we cannot control. I was going to say loss. Loss. Can't control it. That's right. How it's worded often is not getting what you want and getting what you don't want or losing what you want or have. Yeah, please. Uh, Whatever. Yeah, okay. So responses to what's coming up right now, fear, anger. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to talk about that one a little bit. 
Yeah. So there, there's these really concrete things that we can't control. Um, you know, and I have a, a list, relativity, rhythm, gestation, um, cause and effect, right? Once that ball gets rolling, there will be an, there will be an effect from that cause. Um, and there's and so what so that's the first noble truth right are these things these things that we cannot control but again but what the second noble truth points to again is how hard we try and what the buddha was pointing to is that's why we suffer is because we try it's like constantly running into the wall over and over and over again because we refuse to acknowledge there are certain things that we cannot control. And many of you have seen me do this before. It's old. It's an old trick, but it's like really effective. I shouldn't do it with my glasses though, is gravity, right? Cannot control it. If I open my hand, what's going to happen? Right. If I say, please, 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 I swear I'll never do that again. I swear I'll be good all the time. I promise to da-da-da-da, right? What's going to happen? It's still going to fall. So, like, we really get that. We really get that if I open my hand, I could do it 52 times. It's still going to, that's not going to change. We get that one. But there's so much truth of nature that we don't get in the same way or we just don't want to right because it might hurt too much it's too hard to but what the buddha is pointing to is that once we get that we'll suffer a lot less and then the good news is what can i control so to me, the first two noble truths are the what can't I control? The second two noble truths, the second, you know, three and four are what can I control? What can I control? What are the truths of nature and existence that I can? Any ideas? <laughs> what I consume? Absolutely. It's choice. Ice cream carrots. Both are yummy. <laughs> but they both have a different effect, right? Right. Our reactions. Right. And so that kind of goes, <laughs> right? That's like, wait a minute, I just said. <laughs> right. So our reactions, that's a, that's a big one. And let's, let's see about that. What else can we control? Right, our speech. Our speech is within our control. What we want to say <laughs> might be one thing, but what we actually do say is another. How we see things. Okay, let's let's talk about that. Because that to me goes into like genetics and history. And I saw a hand back there, yeah. Who we surround ourselves with, right? So our actions. Where we put in effort. Yep. So that's like where we put in effort. Yeah. Our livelihood and profession. 
livelihood. Okay, someone who knows the Eightfold Path, <laughs> our livelihood. So what can't I control and what can I control? For me, when I even just hear that, there's some ease. There's some ease because the what can't I control, I don't really need to worry about so much. I'm not saying it's not going to hurt. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard. I'm not saying it, it might not even be tragic. But there's something about, there's some ease that I know I can put my energy, my effort into what I can. And so how it's laid out in the Eightfold Path, what I can control are my, are my actions, my speech, certain ways of thinking, which I want to, I want to talk about for a minute are, um, this sort of the volitional ways of thinking and the non-volitional ways of thinking. So there are thoughts and, and it came up this morning. There are certain thoughts that just drop into our, our minds, right? Just like any sense door, we smell something, we hear something, we taste something. We don't have to try to make it happen. It just happens. So those thoughts that you're like, where did that come from? Right? They just come in, they drop in uninvited, unprovoked. Those are the non-volitional thoughts. And then where we do sort of pick up the baton is what we then do with that thought. If we then keep thinking about it and thinking about it and tell a story about it and run with it, right, and keep going, there's a scientist who said that an emotion lasts for 90 seconds tops, 90 seconds. And then without a thought, it just, it simmers out. That's what this one scientist said. I don't. So that if we don't keep, I kind of think of it as a skateboard in a way. You know, it's like if you keep kicking the skateboard, it'll keep rolling. And what happens if you stop? What happens if this leg stops? The skateboard kind of just rolls out. So this is what this scientist said, um, Bolton Taylor says about, about emotions. So is that true? Check that out. Like if you don't keep adding the story to it, if you don't keep feeding the flame, does the emotion and the thinking keep going? So then that would be the volitional thinking, which then is said to lead to, to karma, to cause and effect. If we volitionally keep it going, that is what creates our future being. It, it's what creates our future self. So what can I control? My actions, my speech, certain ways of thinking. And, and there's, and there's a whole lot more, but there's other, there are other teachers here that'll talk, you know, about that a little bit more. Um, so there's a, you may have heard of the, what we call this, the second arrow. Um, which is this, this way of there's an initial pain or experience that we run into. And then it's that, it's that thing where if we sit there trying to figure out where did it come from? How did it get here? What's it about? What do, what do I need to do? That's sort of the second arrow. When we're dealing with the initial consequence of the pain, Oh, this, I can feel this in my heart. I can feel this in my gut. I can feel there's a sensation. We talked about this a lot this morning. 
So for, for me in my personal life, when I was much younger and um, this practice is what has helped me deal with this was my, my first arrow was loneliness. I had like just a deep, deep experience of loneliness in my, in my life. And I would say this is, you know, going through my early and late teen years. And what my loneliness did, you know, it's just like, it was that hungry ghost thing where I was constantly trying to feed my loneliness. And I would feed my loneliness through, you know, grabbing onto friendships. But how I mostly fed my loneliness was through promiscuity. It was through as many sexual relationships as I could possibly gather because it would give me this momentary relief. Right. So I would, I would have a, an experience and then I felt better. I would have an experience and I felt better. And it wasn't, it wasn't just like the physical relief, but it was also an emotional, like, Oh, somebody thinks I'm worthy. Somebody thinks I'm cute. Somebody thinks I'm special. Somebody thinks I'm right. So it was a, it was a sex and love thing, right? It was both. And I was under the delusion. Um, that, that if I had enough experiences that I'd be okay. But what in reality happened, as you can imagine, is it just caused further harm. It caused harm to myself. This is why that third precept is really like a big, a big thing to pay attention to. I was causing more harm to myself through my actions of trying to get rid of a core experience. And I was causing a lot of harm to other people. And a lot of confusion to myself and other people. Confusion, confusion, confusion. And then there was one point when I started becoming a practitioner where I realized that it was loneliness and this pain that I thought I could not handle. I didn't trust myself enough to handle my own loneliness. And I thought the loneliness was bigger than me. And so when I realized that the pain I was causing myself was actually unbearable and that I was causing other people, I had to put it down and then I had to sit with this thing, right? I had no more distractions and I had to sit with it and sit with it and sit with it. And I really, I mean, for me, it was just like a big experience here. And at times it felt overwhelming and devastating, but I refused to act out anymore and hold myself. And I just kept learning how to hold myself. I had to learn how to tolerate. I had to learn how to not respond just every time I felt empty. And then in doing that enough times, learning how to trust myself, learning how to, how to not be triggered by my loneliness, that it just started going away. It got less and less and less. And then loneliness was just an emotion. You know, it was no longer overwhelming or overpowering me. It was something that arose. It was part of being human. Um, and I didn't need to cause, need to cause harm because of it. So then the first arrow wasn't something that I couldn't relate to or take care of or hold. And that was because of this mindfulness practice directly. I was too ashamed to talk to anybody about it. So I didn't talk to a therapist about it. I didn't talk to friends about it. But I sat with myself with it. 
And so oftentimes, not always, sometimes, you know, sometimes we have experiences that are, that we do need help with and we do need to talk to somebody else about and get some, some extra hands on. Um, but for me, sometimes the, the, it's sort of like the, the monster under the bed, you know, it was really a stuffed animal. It wasn't really a monster. Right. But until I looked, I couldn't know that or see that. And then once I did, the beauty of that was that I could then, my relationships changed with people because I wasn't using my, um, my sexuality to engage. And then I got, I learned myself. I learned the good parts of me, you know, blah, 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 blah. I could go on and on about it. But that was a really important thing for me. And this is, this goes into the what can I control and what can't I control? That emotion to me did not feel like I could control it. And I couldn't at the time. So I worked with it and worked with it and worked with it until it became something that I could. So when we lurk, look at, um, this path of, of, mindfulness and the body as nature, the body as change, the body as, um, you know, part of the process of being human. We don't have to take everything so personally. Um, we don't have to be so wrong. We can really just learn to engage with what's right in front of us, just like a tree, just like an animal, just like a bug, just like a bat, right? Just like a flower. And so we're watching a process bloom and unfold and die and pass. So each thought, each moment arises, occurs and passes, arises, occurs and passes. So, um, yeah, just the, the encouragement to allow yourselves to be that which is natural, that which is completely and absolutely part of this process of life and nature. Not separate from, not othered. But we're all part of that experience. So I'm just going to close with um, a poem that's one of my favorites right now um, by a poet named Warson Shire called Later That Night. I held an atlas in my lap ran my fingers across the whole world and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So just allowing ourselves to hold our hearts and minds in that tenderness and be gentle. Be gentle with ourselves. So let's just take a minute to sit. <clears throat> 